Would you pray with me now? Father, we ask that by your spirit you would illumine our hearts and our minds to give us not only understanding, but also the application of your word, both for us personally as well as corporately. Your word is living and active and is sharper than any double-edged sword, so we come under it and we expect it to do its work. If we stay neutral towards it, I'm not sure we're really listening. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. So, friends, I say this with the utmost seriousness. Hear the word of the Lord. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So how many of you are depressed after hearing that? That's kind of an up passage of scripture, isn't it? None are good, none are righteous, all have turned aside, together they've become worthless. What would you do if I encouraged you to memorize that scripture? Oh, kind of depressing, isn't it? Well, what is Paul doing? Remember I said this is his concluding argument. Now, I asked this question in first service, and I was very depressed by the answer, because I think there were only three out of about 35 people who raised their hands for this. How many of you remember or have ever seen the TV show Law and Order? Okay, a little bit better. Are you just saying that to encourage me because you don't want me to be depressed? Okay, Law and Order, it's been on TV for what, maybe 75, 85 years or something? It's kind of like the longest running TV show. Okay, and you all know its premise. They're kind of trying to solve these cases. And I always remember the actor, Sam Waterston, was the prosecuting attorney. And he'd come in and they would be giving evidence and then he would have something at the very end that would turn, whoa, look at that. Okay, here's what I want you to picture. Paul is the prosecuting attorney here. He's the prosecuting attorney bringing everybody into God's court. And he is giving his concluding argument. These are the closing arguments. And if you notice, the end of the text, it says, every mouth will be stopped. So there's no defense closing arguments in this particular passage. Now, I will share with you at the end who our defense attorney is and what his closing argument is. But at least in terms of this passage, there is no, it says, so every mouth will be stopped. And Paul, as, as giving his kind of closing argument, and I say closing argument because in chapters 1 and 3, he's been building up his case as to why we all need the gospel. So he's been making his case throughout. But here at the end of chapter 3, he gives his closing summary statement, and he brings it up of three parts. There's a charge, there's evidence, 
and there's a verdict. Paul's close, as a master craftsman, so to speak, okay, Paul is blowing Sam Waterston to bits. He's giving a charge, he's presenting mounting evidence, and he gives his final verdict. Look with me at verse 9, and here's the charge. Verse 9, the charge is, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already, he even uses the word here. Pick, pick up on this. Deep outline, right? The charge, why? Because it says it right here. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So there's his charge. He says, Mr. Judge, here's the charge. All, Jews and Greeks, which means every person, the entire universe, is under sin. Now, we need to understand Paul's language here a little bit. What does he mean by the phrase, under sin? Because this is very important. Under sin is a legal position. Remember I said Paul's making a legal argument, and this is a legal position. It is a legal status. 20th century preacher David Martin Lloyd-Jones, I think, put it very, very well in a very insightful way when he says, the Bible does not say, in other words, the Bible doesn't ask the question, is he a good man? How much good does he do? Is he respectable? It doesn't ask those questions at all, which means application, we shouldn't be asking those questions at all. Those questions are irrelevant. Does he do good? Is he a good person? Is he respectable? The Bible says... Every man is either under sin or under grace. In other words, we must always think of ourselves not primarily in terms of actions or addictions or any particular things that are true about us. It is our whole condition that matters. And then he goes on to say, let me use an analogy. He says, if you visited a foreign country, the first thing they would want to know about you is not the color of your hair or your eyes, or your bank balance, or whether you are a nice person, the first thing they would want to know is what country do you belong to? Are you a citizen of this country, or are you a foreigner? They would want to know the realm to which you belong. Do we hear that? Because this means there are fundamentally two kinds of people in the world. There are two realms that everybody lives under one of them. There's the realm of sin, and there's the realm of grace. That's it. It's not good and bad people. You live either under sin or under grace. You're in one position or the other. You have one status or the other. And Paul here, here's his charge. He's making the charge that he says, everybody No matter your background, no matter your heritage, no matter your achievement, no matter the quality of the life you've lived, no matter what, you are born naturally under the realm of sin. Jews and Gentiles alike are under sin. That is the charge he makes. Now his argument throughout his letter to the Romans thus far has been flawlessly logical. Remember in chapter 1 he made the point that he says... Look at the people who are more pagan in lifestyle, immoral. It's very easy to see. They're under sin. And then it's almost like to kind of say, I know what you conservative people, you moral people are saying. Let's turn the tables on you all because you are under sin. And now in chapter 3, he says, everybody is under the same charge. Tall, short, fat, skinny, 
heritage, not heritage, whatever it is, you are under sin. That's what you're born in. It's kind of like repeating what David prayed in Psalm 51. Surely I have been conceived in sin. Paul's making the same charge here. Now, notice a couple things he's not saying. He's not saying here that every person is as sinful as every other person. That's why I said, is he a good person or not, is kind of an irrelevant question. He's not saying everybody is as sinful as Jeffrey Dahmer or everybody is as good as Mother Teresa. He's making the charge that all alike are born into this condition and this status known as sin. So it doesn't mean that people are as bad as they could possibly be. So that's the charge. And that's the first point. That's verse 9. Now, what do you normally do when you make a charge? You have to present evidence, right? Pretend we're from Missouri. Have you ever seen the license plate? What does Missouri on the back of the license plate say? It's the show me state. Paul's made a charge, and now they're saying, show me. And Paul says, okay then. And boy, does he show us. Because look at what it says in verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. I don't know about you, but it sounds like an open and shut case to me, doesn't it? What do you think? Tim Keller lists the evidence, and he says you could put it under several different kinds of categories to show the far-reaching effects of the evidence of our sin. He says, first of all, look at how it affects our relationship to God, the spiritual relation. Verse 10, he says, there is none righteous, no, not one. And again, we have to say that this means there's none in a right relationship none that have the right status or legal position before God. That means there is no one in the history of mankind, no one in the universe who naturally is in a right relationship with God. And one of the radical things that we have to recognize is is that how this distinguishes Christianity. This is a claim unique to Christianity that no other philosophy, no other religion makes. Only Christianity says we are all in the same boat. Only Christianity completely relativizes all of us. That we all deserve the same fate. That there is no one, and it means, here's part of the application, there is no one any better or in a better position than anyone else. Which means we should be, especially we who are already Christians, should be very humble with how we come across to others. I don't mean just what we say, but how we are perceived, how we come across. Do we come, if we ask somebody, do I come across, do you take me as thinking I'm better than you? That's a dangerous position. Christianity says we're all in the same boat. There's no one that's any better than anyone else. And you say, what about all the good things that I've done? Well, the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 64, 6, says that even our best deeds, our most righteous acts, the very best we can offer, is like a filthy rag in the sight of God. 
And verse 18, so he says this at the beginning, talking about our relationship with God in verse 10. In verse 18, he kind of envelopes this when he says there's no fear of God before their eyes. The fear of God, which means what we were built for, what we were designed. Here's kind of, so we say, what is a fish built for? A fish is designed to be in water. Put a fish in water, what does the fish do? He flourishes. Human beings, what are human beings built for? What are human beings designed for? We are designed to worship God, to revolve for God to be the center. And we revolve around him. We orbit around him. Fear of God is a worship word. To be in wonder and to be in awe. And what he's saying is there's no... So instead of God being the center and we orbit around him, we make ourselves the center. St. Augustine defines sin as turned in upon oneself. It's the heart and the root of self-centeredness. There's no fear of God before their eyes. So instead, we turn in on ourselves. And maybe we still believe in God. But there's no worship of God before our eyes because we're wanting God to be useful and come through for us. God, you're powerful. Would you revolve around me? You might be able to help me get what I want. That's not the fear of God. So the first area, here's the first part of the evidence. Our relationship with God is tainted and polluted. But secondly, our minds are also polluted. Verse 11 says, there's no one who understands. Now, earlier in chapter 1, Paul said, remember I said this is the conclusion of his argument, so he's only concluding things that he has previously stated. In chapter 1, Paul said that we actually have the truth of God. It's revealed to us in creation and nature that God ought to be worshipped. But what we do is we suppress that truth. The illustration I always use is the language that's used there is picture we're swimming in the pool over by the fellowship hall. And you're in the pool and you take one of those giant beach balls and you're holding it down under the water. That's the image of suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. God has revealed that he is God, that he ought to be worshipped, that he is majestic, that he is sovereign, that he is filled with splendor and beauty and truth. We take that truth naturally and we hold it down and we suppress it. So as he said in verse 21 of chapter 1, our thinking becomes futile and our foolish hearts were darkened. And as one commentator put it, he said, notice that the ignorance does not cause the hardness of heart, but rather the hardness of heart causes the ignorance, which leads to a lack of understanding. Sin, our self-centeredness, leads us to filter out a lot of reality. It is a form of denial. We don't want to see the holiness and sovereignty of God or the sinfulness and weakness of ourselves. So as a result to it, we're blind to it. We're blind to many truths, and thus our thinking does not work. There is no one who understands. And even as believers, we need to recognize what theologians call the noetic effects of sin. In other words, how sin taints and affects our thinking. Thus, if, as Jeremiah says, we're self-deceived because of sin, I think one of the applications is we ought to be very careful about being too certain about any area of our thoughts. Even as believers, we're still mixed in our thoughts. We're a mixture of flesh and spirit so that we ought never to be too certain we are right in our interpretation. See, it's one thing, let me make a contrast, it's one thing to be certain that God's word is truth. Be certain of that. It's another thing to be certain of your understanding of God's word. God's word is inerrant and infallible and be certain that that's truth. 
We, on the other hand, are extremely fallible. So there ought to be always some humility, a proper sense, and I quote this all the time of Proverbs 3, that says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do you remember the second half of that verse? Lean not on what? Your own understanding. Lean on God's word, it's true. Your understanding of it? Eh, Not so much. What you think you know perfectly, you think too much of yourself. You're too full of yourself. You're too self-important. That's part of the evidence that Paul is presenting. Brings us down to size, doesn't it? You wish he'd stop, but he keeps going. Because look what else. He says our motives are impacted. The rest of verse 11 says, no one seeks for God. Now, what does that mean? Because I don't know about you, but I watch football games on Sunday afternoon, and I see the guy has scored a touchdown, he caught the pass, and what he did, he did his little celebration dance, and then he went something like this and pointed upwards. Kind of made it like he was praying, right? Wasn't he seeking for God? Not so much, not necessarily. See, what does it mean to seek for God? It means to seek him for who he is in and of himself. It means to seek his beauty, his truth, his glory, his presence. As our catechism says, to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. It is to seek him for who he is in himself and listen very carefully, not for what we get out of him. Tim Keller put it, do you find God beautiful for who he is in himself or do you find him useful? Are you seeking him because he answers prayer or do you seeking him when you pray because when you pray, you get him? Jesus said, this is, to know, this is eternal life that you may know God and know the one he has sent. Does God answer prayer? Yes, but that's not the point of prayer. The point of prayer is getting God. And what Paul is saying, none of us seek God for God. We all are selfish. We're all turned in on ourselves. And we all seek God in a utilitarian sense for what we can get out of God. He keeps going. Wouldn't you wish he would stop? (laughs) Verse 12, it affects our will. All have turned away. We've all turned away from God. As it says in Isaiah 53, verse 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Or I like to quote Judges, the last verse in the book of Judges all the time that says, in those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. If you've turned aside from it, now as you see fit, you may see fit to do very nice things for other people. And they're still nice things that you're doing. I'm not going to call them not nice. Please, do nice things for me. I like it. But it doesn't necessarily mean you haven't turned aside from God. Everyone did as he saw fit, which, which is why, apart from Christ, you have chaos and anarchy. We have 7 billion people doing what 7 billion people think makes sense to them. I don't know about you, but that really sounds like chaos. We've all, the flesh is characterized by this conscious turning away from God, doing what we think makes the most sense to us. So the last category Dr. Keller talks about is he says, should we be surprised that if sin affects our our minds, our wills, our motives, our understanding, that it wouldn't do some pretty heavy damage to our relationships? And we wonder where conflict comes from. 
We should be amazed there's not more conflict amongst us when this is what's the characteristic of our flesh. Verse 13 says, their throat is an open grave. And Dr. Keller here says that is the image of a grave with rotting bodies in it. Lovely picture. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace, the way of shalom, they have not known. Paul highlights two main areas where our relationships are impacted and is the areas of deceit or dishonesty and bitterness. Isn't it interesting that our tongues, the gift of language, was meant to create relationships? See, it's with my tongue, it's with language that I can say, tell me about yourself. What have you gone through in life? Tell me about your joys. Tell me about your dreams. Tell me about your fears. Tell me, how have you been hurt? How have you been excited? What are you looking for? It creates relationship, and it also can tear down and be biting, can it? James in James chapter 3 says, Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Is it any wonder that as a result, violence ensues? We've seen the charge. All are under sin. What's the evidence? Our relationship with God spiritually, our minds, our motives, our wills, our relationships with others. So what's the verdict? Verse 19, Paul says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. There's the verdict. The judge has spoken. No one will be justified. And the word means declared right. It is what the rest of the letter will be unpacking. The verdict is that no human being will be justified or declared acceptable or be declared okay or declared right in his sight. In other words, no one can put yourself in an acceptable status or acceptable position before God which means as a result, our mouths are stopped. You have no defense. You cannot justify yourself. You have nothing to justify yourself but to be quiet in the sight of God. But does that leave us hopeless? Absolutely not. Very interesting contrast. Hundreds of years prior to Paul writing this letter, Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 62 and verse 1. And recognize when the prophet speaks, so we, when he says, I, he's speaking for the Lord. So this is the Lord speaking through Isaiah. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness, her right standing, and her right status breaks forth like the dawn. Now, I want you to notice this contrast. 
Paul is saying to Jews and Gentiles alike, so Paul is saying to everyone in this room, be quiet. There is nothing you can say before God. You have no justification before God. But guess what happens if you're quiet? Someone else can speak. And prophet Isaiah said there's going to come a day, someone who refuses to be quiet. For Zion's sake, do you hear the urgency and the commitment and the zeal in the prophet's words? For Zion's sake, I will not be silent. I will not rest until her righteousness breaks forth like the dawn. Friends, we have a Savior, the second person of the Trinity, the incarnate Word who left His Father's throne above to come to the earth to not rest until He provided for our justification, until He provided for our righteousness. See, how do we get there in a right standing before God? Only by accepting the justification of Christ. And we need to recognize what that word justify means. For it does not mean to change something. It doesn't mean to change the thing. It means to change our view of the thing. To regard differently. God, through the cross and the work of Jesus Christ in justifying us, is not making us a better person. Is not changing us but he's changing how he views us, changing how he regards us because of the work of Christ. He is regarding us as forgiven, in other words, non-touchable, non-condemnable, and altogether righteous, meaning acceptable. Tim Keller tells the true story to illustrate this. I think it's a great story of a particular event in a high school where a teenager in the hall of his high school suddenly hauled off and slugged another kid, walloped him, knocked him cold, knocked him flat. And people, of course, what do they do in a hall of a high school? Fight, fight, fight. Everybody rushes up, right? Isn't that what happens? You come up, so here comes everybody rushing in. People are rushing in. Teachers are rushing up. The principal, who at least saw part of it, rushes up, and he says to the kid, you're out of here. Come to my office. You're expelled. You're done. And what did the kid say? What did he do? He says, well, would you please look in that other kid, the kid I hit, would you please look in his pocket? And he looked in the pocket, and there was a gun. And his hand was on the gun. And this was the kid who was knocked out. And so the kid who knocked him out says, yes, I knocked him out. I slugged him. But he was about to shoot somebody. Now, what did he do? He justified his behavior extremely well. He did not change his behavior. He said, I did it. I slugged him. It's on the record. He didn't change the behavior, but he sure changed the view of the behavior, didn't he? See, to justify something is not to change the behavior, but how it's regarded, how it's treated. Our behavior is still the same. We're still unkind to people. We still don't love God very well. We still don't demonstrate and bear a whole lot of the fruit of the Spirit. But because of Jesus Christ's life, death, resurrection, ascension into glory, his present rule and reign, because of the performance of Jesus Christ, we are regarded a whole lot differently by God himself. No one will be justified in God's sight by works of the law, but we are justified by the works of Jesus Christ. See, to become a Christian is to be justified. 
because you're in Christ. And that means Christ's performance, the performance of his death and the performance of his life, of his righteousness, is regarded as yours. It is counted as yours. Friends, that is what the cross accomplished. There's a charge, there's evidence, and there's a verdict. And Christ received the verdict. Let's pray. Lord, this is good news indeed. And I pray that it would be good news to us. And I pray that we would learn to live and embrace the good news instead of all of our attempts, I'll word it that way, at self-justification. All the dynamics and the ways we try to justify ourselves. Help us to empty ourselves. In fact, help us to think of ourselves less because we're so secure in the fact that Christ has justified us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.